Hello, I'm Gary and this is episode 130 of EV Musings, a podcast about renewables, electric vehicles and things that are interesting to electric vehicle owners. On the show today we'll be looking at solar panels, batteries and air source heat pumps. I want to warn you in advance that this is a long one with me doing a lot of talking, so either chunk this one up into smaller bits or sit down with a good strong drink of your choice and run it all through at once. This is the podcast is sponsored by ZapMap. Before we start, I wanted to remind you to check through the back catalogue of episodes if there's something specific that you want to know about. Cables, charge costs, specific EV models, hubs, charge point operators, batteries, etc. There's probably something there for you to listen to. I also have a small favour to ask. I would really appreciate it if you shared this podcast with a family member, friend or colleague. It would mean a lot. Our main topic of discussion today is basically getting off the grid. I've lived in my house for 26 years. I was lucky enough to be able to pay off the mortgage early and I decided that the money I was saving on the mortgage payment would go into trying to get me off the grid or at least off fossil fuels as much as I could. Like many people who get an electric car, I subsequently took an interest in renewable energy, time of day tariffs, storage batteries and the like. One of the first things I did was to get onto the Octopus Go tariff, which gave me reduced rate overnight charging for my electric vehicle. Currently, I'm on five pence per kilowatt hour, but this will increase when the tariff renews later this year. At the moment, it's likely it will go to seven and a half pence a kilowatt hour. That's still acceptable for overnight recharging of the car. A full charge of 30 kilowatt hours will then cost two pounds 25. I can live with that. But it wasn't long after that that I decided I wanted to get off gas as a heat source. I have a gas boiler, a basic old one, non-condensing, that's been in since I bought the house in 1996. Yeah, I know. It's not complicated, it's reliable and it works. But being 25 plus years old, it's not very efficient and it's realistically approaching the end of its useful life. I'm spending a reasonable amount of money on gas during the winter, although in summer it's just used for a couple of hours in the morning to heat the hot water. I also have a gas hob, which I want to replace with an induction one. So bearing that in mind, I wanted to get started looking at putting in solar panels, storage batteries and an alternate source of heating. But this is a big topic with many dead ends and blind alleys if you don't know what you're doing. So I decided my first call of action was to speak to someone who's been here before which is where Warren Phillips comes in. Warren is the newly promoted chairman of EVA England and and I've known him for several years. He was one of the first to get the Kia e-Nero in the UK and he took me out for a ride in it shortly after taking delivery. He's been there, done it and finished when it comes to getting off fossil fuels. His house is insulated, solar powered, battery equipped, Tesla Powerwall and heat pumped. There's very little wasted energy. In fact, Once the house is at temperature, he can use thermal insulation and the inherent body heat from anybody who's in the room to maintain the required temperature of the house. We spent an excellent hour chatting and him taking me on a little Zoom tour of his setup, which was really interesting to see how it's been done. Once I'd spoke to Warren, it was obvious that there was some prep work I needed to do before I spent money on a heat pump. Not so much for the solar though. So I looked at insulation. My loft insulation was standard for the time the house was built. It is, however, now only half as deep as what is currently being recommended. So loft insulation went on the list of jobs to do. Then I needed to get a quote or two for the work I wanted doing. I spoke to the supplier that Warren recommended, but unfortunately they didn't cover my area. 
Warren's down in Sussex, and I'm across in North Hampshire. So I spoke to a supplier that they recommended in my area, and I got a quote for what I wanted. Actually, I got three quotes. One for solar panels with an 8.5 kilowatt hour storage battery, one for solar panels with a 13 kilowatt hour storage battery, and one for an air source heat pump. When the figures came in and I'd recovered from the initial shock, I sat and thought about this for a while. In the meantime, because I was looking at having a heat pump installed, I got a heat survey done. A heat survey costs around £250, and it analyses your house to determine the suitability of a heat pump, as well as calculating your current and future heat rating. In my case, the survey reviewed the current setup in the house and made recommendations regarding cavity wall insulation, upgrading radiators, and providing a heat rating for my house, alongside a potential heat rating when the work was done. In theory, I would go from a D rating to a B rating. Not bad. Then I made a decision which was right at the time, but which, in hindsight, I would have made differently. I went for the 8.5 kilowatt hour battery, not the 13.5 kilowatt hour one. More on that later. The heat pump survey indicated that I would need radiator upgrades due to lower flow temperatures with a heat pump because the bigger surface area allows you to reach the same room temperature. Let's do a little sidebar here. <clears throat> There's a lot of uproar in the media about the fact that heat pumps run cooler than gas boilers. The Daily Fail headlines about this scream, heat pumps can't keep your house warm enough, which is of course complete nonsense. They use lots of these in places like Sweden, which is much colder in winter than we are, and they seem to work quite well there. Yes, heat pumps don't run water at 80 degrees around your radiator. They run it at 50 or 55 degrees. But considering you only heat your house to, what, 22 or 24 degrees in winter? Why do you need water in there to be 80 degrees? All this means is that a heat pump won't heat it quite as quickly at a 50 degree flow temperature as a boiler at 80 degree flow temperature. In order to balance this, larger radiators are sometimes needed. Larger radiator equals more surface area equals quicker heating. It's not rocket science, it's just basic physics. Once the temperature's reached, there's no issue with the flows and keeping the room warm. The actual daily fail headline should be, gas boilers waste 30 degrees of heat while warming your house. That's the one reason people have now started reducing the flow temperatures in their condensing boilers. End of sidebar. So anyway, I pulled the trigger on the install. The guys came and put the solar panels and the controller in, and it took them a good day. However, it was early February, the weather was a bit nasty, and it got dark before we could really test everything. But when the sun rose the next morning, I was able to see solar power streaming in through the system and pumping out through my zappy car charger, just as I expected. Excellent. The thing that was missing at this point was the battery. Obviously, batteries are in big demand at the moment. Most lithium-ion cells have been put into the thousands of EVs being manufactured. So finding spare ones to put into storage batteries proved to be a little problematic. What it meant was that the battery I had ordered before Christmas was still not here in February when I had the solar panels installed. No problem. All it meant was that they needed to come back a week or two later and add the battery. A simple install, one man, half a day. Finally, I had a complete system I could actually use to power my house. I could use the solar to run the house during the day, with excess going to the battery, and when the sun went in, I could use the battery to power the house until the next sunrise. Perfect. 
except it wasn't, and we'll talk about that later. In the meantime, the heat pump arrived. It took the guys five days to install the heat pump, and that's one reason why heat pump installs are quite expensive. There's a lot of work to be done on the installation over and above fitting the actual heat pump itself, which basically took about four hours. Then I needed to start experimenting with the settings to get everything right. I have a Nest electric thermostat with it, as well as the Midea controller for the unit itself. The Midea controller is hardwired into the wall and it has all sorts of menus and a big instruction manual, all for managing the heat pump. The water tank has an additional controller which acts as an immersion heater and a Legionella disinfectant. Then came the whole experimentation with working out exactly what time everything needed to be switched on and off. The hot water was set to work early in the morning so it was ready when I awoke. This meant it could be done using the off-peak electricity but that would also then pull for the battery, which I don't want to do. Unfortunately, at the moment, there's no way of stopping this. Along with the heating coming on, the heat pump was pulling about 70% of the battery early in the morning just to heat the house. The solution was to make sure that the hot water was on during the Octopus Energy off-peak tariff period, half 12 uh, in the morning to 4.30 in the morning. The battery can be set to only charge during that time and therefore won't push power out to the heat pump to heat the water. So this reduced the pull from the battery considerably. Once temperature was reached, the pump would silently cut in and out throughout the day while the solar drip fed power back into the battery. As I mentioned before, everything runs off apps. I have one for the Zappi, one for the solar, one for the battery, give energy, and a controller for the heat pump, Nest. It's all very high tech and exciting, at least for now. It's a bit of a fiddle when you first start, especially as the Give Energy portal is still in beta and there's precious little documentation about how the system works. For several days, I saw, for example, that the battery wouldn't charge during the morning and only started to refill from solar when it came to the mid-afternoon. The rest of the time, my excess solar was going back out to the grid. A quick note on solar going out to the grid. It seems like a waste, but in reality, what you're actually doing is sending cheap renewable energy out for other people to use, usually your neighbours. This means that they're getting a greener grid in general. You shouldn't worry about it too much, although you will. By the time this episode is released, I should have clicked over one megawatt hour of solar power generation from my array. That's not bad and it will go even higher if the forecast heatwave this year come through. I'm going to look at costs and related topics in a few moments, but before we do that, there are 10 things I learned throughout all of this that you might want to keep in mind. Number one, car chargers, or the MyEnergy Zappi in particular, won't initiate unless you have 1.4 kilowatts of power going to them. So if you're getting a 500 watt trickle charge from the sun through the solar panels, it won't do anything. This can be disappointing when the sun is out, but not strong, and you have a full home battery and your house base load is covered. The excess, instead of going into your car, is going back out to the grid. Number two, setting up solar and batteries and chargers to work together seamlessly is an interesting job, especially when there are different sets of software. For example, I can set the Zappi up to only charge the car when there is off-grid power, which is surplus to requirements. Unfortunately, it can't tell the difference between off-grid power which comes from the solar panels and off-grid power which comes from the battery. It could be discharging the battery into the car alongside the solar. I don't want that. 3. Time of day tariffs 
are also interesting to work out. Should I use them to charge the car or the battery or both? It depends, of course, on what usage is needed for the car and what solar is expected on the following day. If I know it's going to be fairly bright tomorrow and I don't have a long distance to drive, I could just charge the home battery overnight and let the solar fill the car during the day. If I have a trip to do, I can let the time of day tariff fill the car and leave the solar to fill the house battery while I'm out. Number four, you become inordinately interested in the weather when you have solar panels. I now have an account on a website which will feed the expected solar power from my panels into my Give Energy dashboard in order to determine potential solar generation up to three days in advance. It's reasonably accurate too. Uh, this is useful for me to know whether I'll have excess solar to fill the battery or not tomorrow. Number five. My solar array will pull anywhere from 100 watts to 700 watts even if the sun isn't shining during the day. The fact it's light is enough to generate something. And remember, solar panels are only about 20% efficient at the moment. So once that increases, this base power draw from the panels will also increase. Number six. The base load on my house is about 150 watts. This means when I'm not doing anything at all, like cooking, washing or boiling a kettle, etc., I'm pulling 150 watts. This covers keeping the fridge running, keeping my computers and the router on, and any of those clocks and standby devices I might have that run from the mains. It doesn't include the heat pump, though. Number seven. Phone apps don't give real-time data for your solar or charger. There's often a delay of several minutes. This makes it interesting when trying to work out exactly how much energy is going into your house from solar or out of your house if you're not doing anything. Number eight. As soon as your battery is full and the excess solar is going back to the grid, you feel aggrieved that you're losing money. I've actually found myself at one point driving the car around to empty the battery so I could then recharge it on the solar rather than sending it back to grid, which is ridiculous, of course. It's not helped by seeing that in the first two weeks of usage prior to installing the heat pump, the panel sent 68% of my generation back to the grid. See below for more on checking the graphs and reports that come in with your solar and battery. Number nine, knowing what your house pulls for various activities serves as a way of moderating your behaviour. Previously, for example, I would come down in the morning, switch on the kettle, the toaster and the microwave to cook porridge. I could, of course, still do that. But that would put my peak power draw over three kilowatts. And that's the point at which the battery inverter needs additional power and goes out to the grid to get it. However, if I cook the porridge in the microwave, then boil the kettle, and while the tea is steeping, put the toast on, I keep everything below the three kilowatt peak and still have everything for breakfast at the same time. The tea and toast are ready together and the porridge has cooled down to a palatable temperature by then too. And number 10, you can get very focused on checking the graphs and details of each day's solar and battery usage. This is often an exercise in futility though. Every day is different, both in terms of what the solar provides, due to varying sun and cloud coverage, and what energy you need. For example, I don't put a load of washing on every day, nor do I always have cooked food for all my meals. This has an impact on the energy used each day, and it makes day-to-day -day comparisons pretty meaningless. The best thing to do is to check things on a weekly basis. You can get an idea of the savings you're making by looking at the grid usage into your house, the amount that's going into your car as free, free fuel, and what's been sent back to the grid that you're not using. If you decide then that there are other things you could do to use that surplus power, then that's fine. 
Otherwise, let the clean, free power flow back to decarbonize the grid. The final thing to say on this, and it's not one of my original 10, but it's something that links back to a discussion that we had earlier on in the podcast, is the battery size. I knew within about 24 hours that the 8.5 kilowatt hour battery that I'd actually ordered was not big enough because, as I mentioned before, as soon as the battery is full, you start to lose energy out to the grid. So had I gone for the 13 kilowatt hour battery, I wouldn't be sending as much out to the grid. I'd have a lot more in-house. And when it comes to the colder parts of the year, when I'm going to be running the heat pump, this is definitely going to be an advantage. So the big question then is what's the financial cost of this? Well, there are two ways to look at this. You can consider the work I had done as an integral part of purchasing the house and write off the install costs. Everything I save on electricity and gas is pure profit. Or you can look at this from the point of view of offsetting the reduction in fuel usage from the cost of the install and working out a return on investment. As the money I was paying for the mortgage was a sunk cost, the money I offset by repaying the mortgage early went into installing the renewables. In my mind, the install cost nets to zero and everything is pure profit. If I wasn't paying for the install, I would still be paying off the mortgage. This way, I get a house and solar and battery and heat pump. Otherwise, I just get a house, but the cost is about the same. In reality, the install cost in the region of £22,000. That's for the Zappi, £1,100, solar panels in the battery, £9,500, and the heat pump, £11,000. That's a lot of money, right? Well, let's talk a little about that heat pump cost. One of the dings that heat pumps get is that they're much more expensive than gas boilers. And to explain why this is, and why it's not a problem, let me tell you a little story. Hey, back in the mists of time, when I was but a young whippersnapper, my mother would take me every Friday down to my grandma's house. She lived in the next town across, and Friday was fish and chip day. We'd have fish and chips for lunch, and a nice salad for tea. It was lovely, one of those childhood memories to cherish. But one thing I could never quite get my head around was my grandma's house. She lived in what's called a two-up, two-down. For those of you too young to remember what these are, I'll explain. They're tracked houses built in long rows, terraced, and they were narrow and deep. And this maximised the amount of houses you could build in a given footprint of land. No front garden and only a small yard at the back. The width of the house, wall to wall, was maybe 12 feet. They were called two up, two down because they literally had four rooms. From the street, the door opened directly into the front room. A door opposite connected into a stairwell, which connected to the kitchen dining area at the back of the house. The stairs led up to the second floor, which had a bedroom at either side, like the downstairs. The toilet was outside in the backyard. You tell that to kids today and they think you're joking. If you want a visual of this, imagine the scene in Monty Python's The Meaning of Life with the Every Sperm is Sacred song. The kids dancing on the outside toilets of the terraced houses show exactly the sort of dwelling I'm talking about. But the other remarkable thing about Grandma's house was that it had no central heating. Each of the four rooms had an open fire in it. Outside the front door was a small plate in the floor through which coal was delivered via via a chute into the basement and someone had to go down there every day and bring coal up for the fires. 
Ignoring the environmental and health issues associated with burning coal in open fires for heating, it all worked quite well, other than the fact that you had to get up each morning and set a fire in each room to get any warmth into the house. In the middle of a brutal British winter, it literally meant scraping ice off the inside of your window sometimes. Uh, my mother reminds me that 1947 was a particularly bad example of this. In February of that year, there was no recorded temperature above 5 degrees centigrade for the month, and only twice was the overnight temperature above freezing. So at some point, the concept of central heating came in. The house could be reconfigured to allow radiators, a boiler and a hot water system to be installed. Each house already had town gas piped in for the kitchen stove, but it wasn't being used for the heating. Was it cheap to do this? No, absolutely not. The whole house needed piping to be installed, radiators to be fitted and a new boiler set up. In the basement, of course. But ten years later, when it needed replacing, the cost for the new boiler was about what you'd pay now for a new boiler. Inflation adjusted, of course. And that's the same for heat pumps. You're taking out one source of heating and replacing it with a completely different one. There is a lot of additional work that needs to be done over and above the actual siting and plumbing of the pump itself. But once the install is done, any additional upgrades later on are less costly. OK, that's story time over. So how do I work out the return on investment? Well, for the solar and battery, the installing company provides a calculation which determines the potential amount of energy you'll generate from the system and calculates the money you earn per year. This is then determined as a percentage of the total cost. The average is then calculated across a 20-year life cycle, giving me, as per the calculations, a 12.65% return on investment. This varies between an 8.5% yield in year 1 and a 19.94% yield in year 20. Also, this was calculated on a cost of electricity which is now almost impossible to reconcile to. Since the calculations were done, the price of electricity has gone from 16 pence a kilowatt hour in my area to almost 40 pence a kilowatt hour, and this improves my return on investment tremendously. All I know is that in the first four days of switching on the solar and battery combination, I imported a grand total of 30 pence worth of electricity from the grid. Everything else came from solar and storage. At the higher price for electricity, that 30 pence would be 58 pence. Not bad for four days. Furthermore, because I was installing a heat pump, I became eligible for a, re a renewable heat incentive payment from the government. Using a complex calculation, depending on the type of renewable heat, the current energy rating of your home and the proposed energy rating of the house, the government will pay you a set amount of money quarterly for seven years. For me, the calculation came out at about £700 a year. Over the seven years, that effectively covers a little under half the, the installed costs for the Essos heat pump. The renewable heat incentive scheme expired at the end of March and I was lucky enough to get everything in before the deadline. It's been replaced with a grant of around £5,000 to help with the initial cost of a heat pump install. And details for that are linked in the show notes. The other way to look at this is to consider that you can also fuel your electric vehicle from solar. In fact, the first day my solar went in, I plugged the car in via the Zappi and let the system push solar power into the car's battery. At the end of the day, as well as running my house and everything I needed electricity-wise, I'd also put an additional 5 kilowatt hours of solar energy into the car. 
With my current car, that gives me a total of about 20 free miles. In petrol terms, at the current rate, May 2022, that's about £5.40's worth of quote-unquote free mileage in one day. If you could put that amount worth of free fuel into your car every day for, say, nine months of the year, that's approximately £1,400 worth of fuel you haven't had to buy for an internal combustion engine car. Looking at the cost of the solar panels themselves, at that rate you've paid for them in less than 23 months. That's just the actual panels themselves, nothing else. And that's not bad, so it all depends on how you look at the figures. The other way I'm looking at this is by reducing my gas usage. With the heat pump and the induction hob, I can remove the gas coming into my house completely. This year, I spent £105 on gas just in January to March. This year, I'll spend zero from April onwards. So that £105 is effectively a contribution that can go into electricity to power my heat pump. With a more efficient heating system such as the heat pump, alongside reduced grid use of electricity due to solar, overnight time of day tariffs, and the home storage batteries, that £105 should be worth quite a lot more this year than it was last year. So what about feed-in tariffs? Feed-in tariffs, or FIT payments, were government payments that paid people who installed solar panels for the excess power they were pushing back into the grid. Unfortunately, FIT payments for new installs no longer exist to the same extent they used to when the government was incentivising solar. What you do have now is tariffs from suppliers who will pay for your outgoing electricity. Our good friends at Octopus Energy have one of those. You can either follow the wholesale price of electricity or take a fixed 5 pence per kilowatt hour export rate. As with Octopus Agile for income electricity, this can be a blessing or a curse depending on how the price is moving. Back when I first wanted to do this, 5 pence a kilowatt hour looked good. I mean, the wholesale electricity price was dropping down to negative pricing at that point. Yeah, remember the good old days of, checks notes, 2021, when we had negative overnight pricing for electricity, eh? Nowadays, however, following the wholesale price would seem to make the most sense. But there is, of course, a downside to this. I can't use the Octopus outgoing price to send excess power back to the grid and also use the Octopus Go tariff to bring cheap electricity in from the grid overnight. It's a case of one or the other. If you want the Octopus outgoing tariff, you have to take the Octopus Agile rate for incoming energy. That's quite expensive at the moment, as you can imagine. On the one hand, that makes sense. If you didn't have this linkage, you could fill your battery at 5 pence a kilowatt hour overnight and sell it back to the grid at 30 pence a kilowatt hour at peak times. You'd make the 25 pence profit on every kilowatt hour and pocket that. And that's not fair on the electricity companies who are losing money on the Octopus Go rates. On the other hand, if the aim is to level the grid and reduce the peaks in demand, then this is exactly the sort of opportunity that should be seized. Pay people to store cheap electricity and sell it back to the grid at peak times. I did discover that Octopus Energy and presumably others do what's called a Smart Export Guarantee Tariff, which lets you export at 4.1 pence per kilowatt hour during the day. This is not the Octopus outgoing tariff and it needs all sorts of approvals and documentation from your DNO and installer to prove eligibility. But 4.1 pence per kilowatt hour all day while exporting is better than nothing, right? In summer, that could add up to a nice little earner. 
So I put the request in for this with Octopus and that should come through soon. Maybe when energy prices start to level off, companies will look at this again. I know there are YouTubers out on the internet who've worked out that with the tariff they had, they could do exactly what I said and make money. But that was when the incoming rates were much lower than they are now. I suspect all profit is being removed from that equation at the moment. So let's summarise. At the time I started to do this, I was contacted by a good friend of mine who wanted to do exactly the same thing. Solar, battery, heat pump. The one problem he had was making the numbers work. This was for two reasons. Primarily it was because he couldn't get the renewable heat incentive payment as his house has been split into a house and a flat, thereby invalidating the RHI criteria. The second thing was that he was trying to look at the numbers and make a quick profit from this. I told him that what he needed to do was to look at this as a long-term investment and from a social good point of view. You need electricity and you're going to be paying for it. Why not pay slightly less or even nothing for a good part of the year by installing solar and a battery rather than being at the whim of the fossil fuel companies who are going to be charging a fortune for energy over the foreseeable few years. If you look at it from that point of view, it's easy to say, let's go ahead with the install. Obviously, however, if you don't have money to implement this, you either need to bypass the install altogether or go for something like a loan. And that's when the return on investment calculation comes in, which will show the amount of money you're saving by doing the install. Remember also that even if you get a five-year loan to pay for the install, you'll still be making money off the solar 20 years down the line. Heat pumps are going to be big over the coming few years. Remember that one reason they're more expensive is that the cost to rip out a boiler and install a heat pump includes a fixed cost related to setting everything up and configuring it correctly. Once this is done, any subsequent heat pump install will be a lot, lot cheaper. It's as easy as replacing a boiler. If we were in a world of heat pumps and you had to rip them all out and install hydrogen heating, oh, please God, no, uh, there would be a similar high cost for the initial transfer between different heating systems and subsequent upgrades would be a lot cheaper. Companies like Octopus Energy are looking to train hundreds and hundreds of heat pump installers as well as buying the pumps in bulk to reduce the cost of the units themselves. The heat pump I have, which is a Medea 10 kilowatt unit, costs £4,300. Attached to this is the cost of a new water cylinder and all the peripherals needed to set it up originally, plus the installation. Once the air pump is in, any subsequent replacement of this, and it has a 10-year warranty, will involve replacing just the unit, which, by then, should be a lot cheaper than £4,300. In fact, by then, the cost will probably be lower than that of a good gas boiler, which can be 2500 But if you're ever in doubt as to the logic behind something like solar panels, remember this quote from an American climate economist. Quote, First, you spend a lot of money, right? Much less, of course, now than ever before. But you spend the money, and once you have it, you're printing free electricity. Close quotes. Free electricity. I'll take that. By the way, there's now a companion ebook for this episode called So, You've Gone Renewable. It talks about solar panels, home batteries and heat pumps, answering a lot of questions you might have when deciding to get your own installed. Check it out on Amazon. Use the link in the show notes. It's time for a cool EVO Renewable Think Show with listeners. The Royal Mint wants to turn your old phone into gold. One thing the UK's Royal Mint does is produce decorative gold coins. 
it's now decided that to source that gold, rather than buying on the open market and encouraging further mining in places such as South Africa, it's going to reclaim the gold and other metals from disused consumer electronics. Using the system they've perfected in the lab and are now starting to scale up, they literally take circuit boards and other old electronics, break them up, dissolve them, and heat them to produce pure gold. It's a great application of the reduce, reuse, recycle mantra. I love it. The EV Musings podcast is sponsored by ZapMap. ZapMap is the go-to app for EV drivers in the UK. Use it to search for available chargers, plan electric journeys, pay for charging on participating networks, and share updates with other EV drivers. ZapMap is free to download and use, with subscription plans for enhanced features, such as using ZapMap in car, on CarPlay, or Android Auto. And that's the show for today. Sorry it was such a long one. Hope you enjoyed listening to it. If you want to contact me, I can be emailed at evmusings at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at MusingsEV. If you want to support the podcast and newsletter, please consider contributing to become an EV Musings patron. The link's in the show notes below. If you want a quick reference ebook to read on your Kindle, I wrote a little something called <laughs> You've Gone Electric. It's available on Amazon Worldwide for the measly sum of 99p or equivalent, and it's a great little introduction to living with an electric car. Please check it out. If you don't want to sign up for something on a monthly basis and you've enjoyed this episode, why not buy me a coffee? Go to coffee.com slash evmusings and you can do just that, ko-fi.com slash evmusings. Links for everything we've talked about in the podcast today are in the description. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. It's available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a review as it helps raise visibility and extend our reach in search engines, which is always a good thing. If you've reached this part of the podcast and still listening, Thank you. Why not let me know you've got to this point by tweeting me at MusingCV with the words printing free electricity? I like that. Hashtag if you know you know. Nothing else. Thanks as always to my co-founder Simon. You know he had a smoke alarm go off at his house recently. Not not the alarm itself, but the little beep, beep, beep that happens occasionally when they want to warn you of something that needs dealing with. Of course, this happened overnight, so he ended up searching through cupboards and drawers at three in the morning. His wife was, of course, as helpful as she could be at that point. She told him to stop the beeping and come back to bed. But he knew what needed to be done. The thing that was missing at this point was the battery. Many thanks for listening. Bye.